Welcome to Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. This is your reader and host, Mark Braun here. Glad you could join us today. So, I remind you, you're listening to a recording provided by the use of those who are blind and print impaired. Materials or items read in Ayers LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. No siree. So, let's continue with what's going on in Israel. This first one is from the World Section of the Los Angeles Times for Sunday, November 12, 2023. Netanyahu rejects growing calls for a ceasefire. Israel's Prime Minister vows to continue the war on Hamas with full force. By Wafa Shurafa, Semi Magdi, and David Rising. Dear Al-Bala, Gaza Strip. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu on Saturday rejected growing international calls for a ceasefire saying Israel's battle to crush Gaza's ruling Hamas militants will continue with full force. A ceasefire would be possible only if all 239 hostages held by the militants in Gaza are released, Netanyahu said in a televised address. The Israeli leader also insisted that after the war, now entering its sixth week, Gaza would be demilitarized and Israel would retain security control there. As what he meant by security control, Netanyahu said Israeli forces must be able to enter Gaza freely to hunt down the militants who, on October 7, launched an attack into southern Israel, killing at least 1,200 people, most of them civilians, and taking those kidnapped back to Gaza. He also rejected the idea that the Palestinian Authority, which currently administers autonomous areas in the Israeli-occupied West Bank, would be would at some time but at some stage control Gaza. Both positions run counter to post-war scenarios floated by Israel's closest ally, the United States. Secretary of State Anthony J. Blinken has said the U.S. opposes an Israeli reoccupation of Gaza and envisions a unified Palestinian government in both Gaza and the West Bank at some stage as a step toward Palestinian statehood. For now, Netanyahu said the war against Hamas is advancing with full force and it has one goal to win. There is no alternative to victory. The health ministry, which does not differentiate between civilian and militant deaths, said that more than 11,070 Palestinians have been killed since the war began. Pressure was growing on Israel after frantic doctors at Gaza's largest hospital said the last generator had run out of fuel, causing the death of a premature baby, another child in an incubator, and four other parents. Thousands of war-wounded medical staffers and displaced civilians were caught in the fighting. In recent days, fighting near Shifa and other hospitals in northern Gaza has intensified and supplies have run out. The Israeli military has said, without providing evidence, that the militant group Hamas has established command posts in and underneath hospitals, using civilians as human shields. Medical staffers at Shifa have denied such claims and accused Israel of harming civilians with indiscriminate attacks. Shifa Hospital Director Muhammad Abu Salima said the facility lost power Saturday. Medical devices stopped. Patients, especially those in intensive care, started to die, he said, speaking by phone over the sound of gunfire and explosions. Abu Salima said Israeli troops were shooting at anyone outside or inside the hospital and prevented movement between the buildings and in the compound. The claim that Israeli troops were the sole source of fire could not be verified independently. 
Israel's military confirmed clashes outside the hospital, but Rear Admiral Daniel Hagari denied Shifa was under siege. He said troops will provide assistance Sunday in moving babies treated there and said that we are speaking directly and regularly with hospital staff. Amos Yadlin, a former head of Israel military intelligence, told broadcaster Channel 12 that as Israel aims to crush Hamas, taking control of the hospitals would be key but require a lot of tactical creativity without hurting patients, other civilians, and Israeli hostages. Six patients died at Shifa after the generator shut down, including the two children, said Medhat Abbas, a spokesman for the Hamas-run Gaza Health Ministry. The unbearably desperate situation at Shifa must now must stop now, and the director, the director of the International Committee of the Red Cross, Robert Mardini, said on social media. United Nations humanitarian chief Martin Griffiths posted that there can be no justification for acts of war in healthcare facilities, leaving them with no power, food, or water. Elsewhere, the Palestinian Red Crescent said Israeli tanks were 65 feet from Al-Quds Hospital in Gaza City, causing a state of extreme panic and fear among the 14,000 displaced people sheltering, sheltering there. Netanyahu said the responsibility for any harm to civilians lies with Hamas, repeating that the militant group uses civilians and Gaza as human shields. He said that while Israel has urged civilians to leave combat zones, Hamas is doing everything it can to prevent them from leaving. His statements came after French President Emmanuel Macron pushed for a ceasefire and urged other leaders to join his call telling the BBC there was no justification for Israel's ongoing bombing. Israel's military has said soldiers have encountered hundreds of Hamas fighters in underground facilities, schools, mosques, and clinics during, the, during fighting in Gaza. Israel has said a key goal of the war is to crush Hamas, the military group that has ruled Gaza for 16 years. A Hamas official denied that its fighters opened fire at residents trying to leave Gaza City or its hospitals. Speaking by phone, Gaza Gazi Haman called, for, called such assertions by Israel lies and said Hamas doesn't have guards at hospital gates to prevent people from entering or leaving. The spokesman of the Hamas military wing said militants were ambushing Israeli troops and vowed that Israel would face a long battle. The Qassam Brigade spokesman, who goes by Abu Obama, Baida acknowledged in audio aired on Al Jazeera that the battle is disproportionate, but it is terrifying the strongest force in the in the region. Following Hamas's deadly October 7 attack, Israel's allies have defended the country's right to protect itself. But now in the but, but now into the second month of war, there are growing differences in how many feel Israel should con- conduct its fight. The U.S. has been pushing for temporary pauses that would allow for wider distribution of badly needed aid to civilians in the besieged territory where conditions are increasingly dire. Israel has so far agreed to only brief daily periods during which civilians are able to flee the area of ground combat in northern Gaza and its south on foot along the territory's main northern uh, artery. Since the evacu- these evacuation windows were first announced a week ago, more than 150,000 civilians have fled north, according to U.S. monitors. On Saturday, 
The military announced a new evacuation window, saying civilians can use the central road and a coastal road. On the main road, a steady stream of people could be seen heading southward, clutching children and bags of belongings. Many were on foot and some on donkey-drawn carts. One man pushed two children in a wheelbarrow. I am diabetic. I have blood pressure issues. Where to go? And what to do, what do they want from us? Said Yahia Kafarna, a resident fleeing south. Palestinian civilians said rights advocates have pushed back against Israel's portrayal of the southern evacuation zones as relatively safe, noting that Israeli bombardment has continued across Gaza, including airstrikes in the south that Israel says target Hamas leaders but that have also killed women and children. A 57-nation gathering of Muslim and Arab leaders in Saudi Arabia called in their communique for an end to the war in Gaza and the immediate delivery of humanitarian aid. The statement also called on international court the under, called on the International Court of Justice, a UN organ, to open an investigation into Israel's attacks, saying the war cannot be called self-defense and cannot be justified under any means. That was Netanyahu rejects growing calls for a ceasefire by Wafa Sharafa, Sami Magdi, and David Rising. From the World Section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, November 12, 2023. Sharafa, Magdi, and Rising, reporting from Deir al-Bala, Cairo, and Bangkok, respectively, write for the Associated Press. AP writers Julia Frankel in Jerusalem, Ambara Anwar and Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, contributed to this report. All right, and this one is from the Los Angeles Times for Wednesday, November 15, 2023. Peace activist killed by Hamas. Vivian Silver, an Israeli born in Canada, was thought to be a hostage, but her death has been confirmed from the Associated Press. Jerusalem. Vivian Silver, a Canadian-born Israeli activist who devoted her life to seeking peace with Palestinians, was confirmed killed in Hamas's October 7 attack on southern Israel. For 38 days, Silver, who had moved to Israel in the 1970s and made her home in Kibbutz Be'iri, has been uh, uh, believed to be among the nearly 240 hostages held in the Gaza Strip. But identification of some of the most badly burned remains has proceeded slowly, and her family was notified of her death Monday. Silver was a dominant figure in several groups that promoted peace between Israel and Palestinians, as well as a prominent Israeli human rights group. She also volunteered with a group that drove Gaza cancer patients to Israeli hospitals for medical care. On the one hand, she was small and fragile, very sensitive, her son Yonatan Zagan told Israel Radio on Tuesday. On the other hand, she was a force of nature. She had a giant spirit. She was very assertive. She had very strong core beliefs about the world and life. Zagan said he texted with his mother during the attack. The exchanges started out light-hearted, with Silver maintaining her sense of humor, he said. Suddenly, he said, there was a dramatic downturn when she understood that the end had come and that militants had stormed her house. Her heart would have been broken by the events of October 7 and its aftermath, Zegan said. She worked all her life, you know, to steer us of the cor- off, off the, this course, and in the end, it blew up in her face. At least 1,200 people were killed in Hamas's attack on Israel, and more than 11,000 Palestinians have been killed so far in the Israeli war in Gaza. 
We went through three horrific wars in the space of six years, Silver said in a 2017 interview with the Associated Press. At the end of the third one, I said, no more. We each have to do whatever we can to stop the next war. And it's possible. We must reach a diplomatic agreement. Zegan said he has now taken on his mother's baton. I feel like I'm in a relay race, he said. She has passed something on to me now. I don't know what I'll do with it, but I think we can turn the clock back now. I think we can't turn the clock back now. We have to create something new now, something in the direction of what she worked for. That was peace activists killed by Hamas from the Associated Press out of the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, November 15, 2023. All right, here is another one from the World Section of the Los Angeles Times for uh, Wednesday, November 15, 2023. Israeli military expands control of North Gaza. Troops seize enclaves, legislative, and police buildings. Palestinians see the evacuation of patients at a hospital by Wafa Sharafa and Sami Magdi. Deir al-Bala, South uh, Gaza Strip. The Israeli military seized broader control of northern Gaza on Tuesday, including capturing the territory's legislative building and its police headquarters in gains that carried high symbolic value in the country's quest to crush the ruling militant group Hamas. Meanwhile, Palestinian authorities called for a ceasefire to evacuate three dozen newborns and other patients strapped inside the Gaza Strip's biggest hospital as Israeli forces battle Hamas in the streets outside. Inside some of the captured buildings, soldiers held up Israeli and military flags in celebration. In nationally televised news conferences, Defense Minister Yoav Gallant said that Hamas had lost control of northern Gaza and that Israel made significant gains in Gaza City. But asked about the time frame for the war, Gallant said, we're talking about long months, not a day or two. One Israeli commander in Gaza identified only as Lieutenant Colonel Gilad said in a video that his forces near Shifa Hospital had seized government buildings, schools, and residential, uh, residential buildings where they found weapons and eliminated fighters. The army said it had captured Gaza's legislative building, the Hamas's police headquarters, and a compound housing the group's military intelligence headquarters. The buildings carry high symbolic value, but their strategic value was unclear. Hamas fighters are believed to be positioned in underground bunkers. For days, the Israeli army has encircled Shifa, determined to seize the facility it says Hamas fighters hide in, and beneath using uh, civilians as shields for the group's main command base. Hospital staff and Hamas deny the claim. Hundreds of patients, staff, and displaced people were trapped inside, with supplies dwindling and no electricity to run incubators and other life-saving equipment. With refrigeration out for days, morgue staff on Tuesday dug a mass grave in the yard for more than 120 bodies, officials said. Israel has vowed to end Hamas's rule in Gaza after the militants' October 7 cross-border attack, in which they killed at least 1,200 people and took roughly 240 hostages. The Israeli government has acknowledged it doesn't know what, would, what it would do with the territory after Hamas' defeat. The onslaught, one of the most intense bombardments so far this century, has been disastrous for Gaza's 2.3 million Palestinians. More than 11,200 people, two-thirds of them women and minors, have been killed in Gaza, according to the Palestinian Authority Health Ministry in the West Bank city of Ramallah, 
about 2,700 people have been reported missing. The ministry's count does not differentiate between civilian and militant deaths. Almost the entire population of Gaza has squeezed into the southern two-thirds of the tiny territory, where conditions have been deteriorating as bombardment there continues. About 200,000 fled the north in recent days, the United Nations said Tuesday, but tens of thousands are believed to remain. The United Nations Agency for Palestinian Refugees said Tuesday that its fuel depot in Gaza is empty and that it will soon end relief operations, including bringing limited supplies of food and medicine in, front, in, in from Egypt for more than 600,000 people sheltering in schools and other sites in the south. Without fuel, the humanitarian operation in Gaza is coming to an end. Many more people will suffer and will likely die, said Philippe Lazzarini, the commissioner general of the agency known as UNRWA. Israel has repeatedly rejected allowing fuel into Gaza, saying it will be diverted by Hamas for military use. Fighting has raged for days around Shifa Hospital, a complex several city blocks across at the center of Gaza City that has now turned into a cemetery, its director said in a statement. The health ministry said 40 patients, including three babies, have died since Shifa's emergency generator ran out of fuel Saturday. An additional 36 babies are at risk of dying because there is no power for incubators, according to the ministry. The Israeli military said it had started an effort to transfer incubators to Shifa, but they would be useless without electricity, said Christian Lindmeyer, a World Health Organization spokesman. The health ministry has proposed evacuating the hospital with the supervision of the International Committee of the Red Cross and transferring the patients to hospitals in Egypt, but has not received any response, ministry spokesman Ashraf Quidra said. Although Israel says it is willing to allow staff and patients to evacuate, some Palestinians have made it out of some uh, some Palestinians who have made it out of uh, out say Israeli forces have fired at evacuees. Israel Israel says its claims of a Hamas command center in and beneath Shifa are based on intelligence, but has not provided visual evidence to support the, the to support them. Denying the claims, the health ministry in Gaza says it has invited international organizations to investigate the facility. The Palestinian Red Crescent said Tuesday that it had evacuated remaining patients, doctors, and displaced families from another uh, Gaza City hospital, Al-Quds, after more than 10 days of siege during which medical and humanitarian supplies were prevented from reaching the hospital. In a post on X, formerly Twitter, it blamed the Israeli army for bombarding the hospital and firing at those inside. The White House's National Security Council spokesperson, John F. Kirby, said the U.S. has unspecified intelligence that Hamas and other Palestinian militants use Shifa and other hospitals and tunnels underneath them to support military operations and hold hostages. The intelligence is based on multiple sources, and the U.S. independently collected the information, a U.S. official said, speaking on condition of anonymity to discuss sensitive matters. Kirby said the U.S. does not support airstrikes on hospitals and does not want to see a firefight in the hospital where innocent people are trying to get care. Hamas released a video late Monday showing one of the hostages, a 19-year-old, 19-year-old Noah Marciano, before and after she was killed in what Hamas said was an Israeli strike. 
the Israeli military later declared her a fallen soldier without identifying a cause of death. She is the first hostage confirmed to have died in captivity. Four were released by Hamas and a fifth was rescued by Israeli forces. Families and supporters of the estimated 240 people Israel says are being held hostage by Hamas started a protest march from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. The flight of the hostages has dominated public discourse since the October 7 attack with solidarity protests held across the country. The marchers, who expect to reach Jerusalem on Saturday, say the government must do more to bring home their loved ones. Where are you, Shelley Shem Tov, whose son Omer, 21, is among the captives, called out to Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. We have no strength anymore. We have no strength, said Tov. Bring back our children and our families home. Uh, we independent accounts of the fighting in Gaza City have been clearly impossible to gather, as communications in the north have largely collapsed. Videos released by the Israeli military show troops moving through the city, firing into buildings. Bulldozers pushed down structures as tanks rolled through streets surrounded by partially collapsed towers. The videos portray a battle where troops are rooting out pockets of Hamas fighters and tearing down buildings they find them in, while gradually dismantling the group's tunnel network. That was Israeli military expands control of northern Gaza by Wafa Sharafa and Sami Maggi from the World Section of the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, November 15, 2023. Sharafa and Magdi write for the Associated Press. And moving on to other news, this is from the Perspective Section of the Los Angeles Times for Sunday, November 5, 2023. Verdicts show just what crypto is by Michael Hiltzik. It took a federal court jury barely four hours Thursday to find crypto scam artist Sam Bankman-Fried guilty of seven counts of fraud and conspiracy. He was undone partly by a crack team of federal prosecutors who laid out a clear, simple, paint-by-numbers picture of his crimes for the jurors, but mostly by his own greed and arrogance, and, and also by the deceit fundamental by the and also by the, the, the deceit fundamental to the cryptocurrency market itself. The prosecutor strove to keep the jury focused on what Bankman Freed had in common with fraudsters throughout history. The promise to Marx that they will acquire riches beyond compare if they just ride along, rather than on the peculiarities of the crypto market. This is not about complicated issues of cryptocurrency, Assistant U.S. DA Nicholas Roos said in his closing argument to the jurors Wednesday. It's about deception. It's about lies. It's about stealing. It's about greed. U.S. Attorney Damian Williams reiterated that point, uh, that point to reporters in a brief appearance outside the Manhattan courthouse after the verdicts. The cryptocurrency industry might be new. The players like Sam Bankman-Fried might be new. But this kind of fraud, this kind of corruption is as old as time, he said. But, but those statements risk doing a great disservice to investors who might yet be tempted to take a plunge into the crypto market. Crypto promoters will paint Bankman Freed as merely a single rotten apple. That argument may work when fraud occurs in a marketplace that is otherwise real, such as stocks, bonds, or precious metals. It doesn't work in this case, where the market itself is fraudulent. The value of cryptocurrencies can be placed anywhere. They don't produce income like bonds, and their prices can't be pegged 
to liquid, mar liquid markets like those of public company securities. To this day, no one has ever explained what cryptocurrencies are useful for other than paying ransom to crooks holding databases or computer systems hostage. As I reported in the past, even Bankman Freed acknowledged that claims for the useless usefulness of crypto involved a lot of hand-waving. Bankman Freed exploited the vacuity of crypto as an asset by slathering it over with what sounded like profundities but were uh, vacuous at their core. He could not have done so if there actually was anything genuine about crypto. His claims would have been, uh, been weighed against market realities. But since there was nothing real about crypto, there was nothing to weigh them against. His marks had to take him at his word. The harvest. They've lost as much as $10 billion, and Bankman Freed is facing a, pr a prison sentence as long as 110 years. What is amazing about this case is how many people got snowed, including leading investment firms such as Sequoia Capital. That Silicon Valley venture firm put $150 million into Bankman Freed's company, FTX, and followed that up by posting a slavishly adoring article about Bankman Freed on its website. The article reported that Sequoia's partners decided to make their investment after a single last-minute Zoom call with Bankman Freed. Its author, Adam Fisher, related that after his first interview with Bankman Freed, I was convinced I was talking to a future trillionaire. Sequoia later scrubbed the article from its website. I retrieved it from the Internet Archive. The firm assured its clients that its FTX investment was the product of extensive research and a rigorous diligence process. That must have been some Zoom call. Anyway, Sequoia wrote down its FTX stakes to zero. Of the author of Michael Lewis and his credulous book about Bankman Freed going infinite, not much more remains to be said. His reputation for perspicacity in matters financial lies in tatters. He said that he had spent a hundred hours with Bankman Freed in researching the book, yet he didn't see what 12 jurors came to understand after four weeks of testimony. In an interview broadcast on 60 Minutes on October 1st, just before Bankman Freed's trial began, Lewis was still asserting that FTX was a great real business. If no one had ever cast aspirations, aspersions on the business, if there hadn't been a run on customer deposits, they'd still be sitting there making tons of money. Lewis isn't alone in displacing such childlike faith in the realness of crypto. Even if Bankman Freed appeals the verdict, Reuters columnist Anita Ramaswamy wrote after, his, his, after the verdicts, his swift conviction should cause a collective sigh of relief from firms using blockchain technology to solve real problems like streamlining cross-border payments and remittances. The truth is that no one seems to have found blockchain technology, the foundation of which crypto was built, necessary or even useful for solving real problems. Who else got taken in? Politicians who were misled by Bankman Freed's blather, but more by his lavish political donations into thinking that all the crypto field needed to complete its quest for legitimacy were a few judicious but not especially burdensome financial regulations. Bankman Freed testified to Congress in February of 2022 about what those might be. Put briefly, he advocated rules that assembled practices that he said FTX already had put in place. 
His firm, he said, offered customers and investors rigorous risk management practices. FTX platforms have built a reputation as being highly uh, performant and reliable exchanges, he told the Senate Committee on Agriculture, Nutrition, and Forestry, which oversees commodities regulation. Even during bouts of high volatility in the overall digital asset markets, the FTX.com exchange has experienced negligible downtime and technological performance issues when compared to its main competitors. FTX has aimed to combine the best practices of the traditional financial system with the best from the digital asset ecosystems. What may have gotten lost in the commentary about Bankman Freed's criminal trial is that all of this was a lie. He painted FTX as a well-oiled machine designed to minimize risk in the crypto markets, but that structure and those safeguards simply didn't exist. They were all part of the scam. That's what gives the lie to his defense case that everything would have continued working perfectly if he hadn't been momentarily distracted here and there. The facts were laid out last November by John J. Ray III, the corporate restructuring expert installed as FTX's chief executive after it filed for bankruptcy. Never in my career have I seen such a complete failure of corporate controls and such a complete absence of trustworthy financial information as occurred here, Ray told the bankruptcy court. From compromised systems, integrity, and faulty regulatory oversight abroad to the concentration of control in the hands of a very small group of inexperienced, unsophisticated, and potentially compromised individuals, this situation is unprecedented. Ray was the guy who managed the Enron bankruptcy, so it means something for him to say FTX was worse. After Elizabeth Holmes, the mastermind behind the Theranos medical device scam, was convicted of fraud in January 2022, I predicted that the verdict in her case wouldn't stop even sophisticated investors from pouring money into the next big fraud. The Bankman-Fried case allows me to say, I told you so. Will this case keep, uh, keep investors from plunging into the next fraud? Don't bet on it. The quest for easy pickings of FOMO, the fear of missing out, is too powerful a magnet for capital. Even as I write, the next scams are bulking large on the horizon. Keep your eyes on artificial intelligence and self-drive cars. And keep your eyes peeled for the next big thing. It will come along soon enough, and the reckoning uh, won't be made when another with a clever story goes to jail. That was Verdict's show, Just What Crypto Is, by Michael Hiltzak, from the Perspective section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, November 5th, 2023. Hiltzik writes a blog on LATimes.com. Follow him on Facebook or on X, formerly Twitter, at HiltzikM, or email michael.hiltzik at LATimes.com. All right, and now here's this from the Los Angeles Times, Saturday, November 11, 2023. A symbol for something bigger. Paul Kessler is mourned as questions about his death at a protest haunt a community by Grace Tuhi. Paul Kessler was remembered this week as a proud Jew. He and his family had been longtime members of Thousand Oaks Temple Etz Chaim, where Rabbi Ari Averbach said they had been involved over the years, though not recently. 
Still, Kessler remained, an act remained active in his community, recently answering a call from a neighbor to stand opposite a pro-Palestinian demonstration that popped up at a nearby intersection as the Israel-Hamas war escalated. Like most Jews, he has a love for Israel, believes that Jews should be allowed to live in Israel, Averbach said of Kessler. He didn't know Kessler's exact views on Zionism, but the rabbi said Kessler stood for Jewish people's rights to live and prosper without harassment or fear. Kessler held an Israeli flag Sunday afternoon at the corner of Thousand Oaks and Westlake Boulevard, surrounded by almost a hundred others on both sides of the dueling protests, when he became involved in an altercation with a pro-Palestinian demonstrator. Kessler fell to the ground, hitting his head. Hours later, the 69-year-old died at the hospital. Over the last four days, people in the Conejo Valley uh, and beyond have been mourning Kessler's death while also awaiting the results of a law enforcement investigation into what happened. No one has been arrested in his death, though authorities have said they have identified a suspect. The lack of a resolution in the case and lingering questions about exactly what happened to Kessler has hung over memorials and tributes. Religious leaders have been trying to balance many community members escalating concerns that Kessler was attacked because of his support for, of Israel, while also urging people to avoid rushing to judgment until all the facts are in. He has become a symbol for something bigger that wasn't his intention, uh, Averbach said. He was not looking for trouble. Michael, Rabbi Michael Barkley of Temple near Simchat in Westlake Village located not far from where the dueling protests took place, has asked for people to put their trust in local law enforcement and God. The challenge really is that there are directly conflicting statements, Barclay said Thursday night at an interfaith event marking the 85th anniversary of Kristallnacht, which many mark as the start of the Holocaust. We need to trust in them and have faith and not let anger, not, not get stuck in anger. Law enforcement officials have said it's still unclear what led to Kessler's fall, explaining that witnesses from opposing sides of the protest gave conflicting statements about what occurred during the altercation and who the aggressor was. An autopsy found that Kessler died of entries to the back of his head consisting with the fall and ruled the manner of death a homicide, a medical determination that officials have explained doesn't necessarily indicate criminal culpability. The autopsy also found Kessler had non-lethal injuries to the left side of his face. Kessler was found on the ground with blood coming from his head and mouth, deputies said. The man authorities have called, this, have called the suspect who has not been arrested was among those who called 911 after Kessler fell. Ventura County Sheriff Jim Fryhoff said the man has been a cooperative with investigators. The Ventura County Sheriff's Office, in a lengthy update late Thursday, said it is working around the clock to track down any leads, scrutinize electronic data, and corroborate witness statements. The agency continued to ask for any witnesses to the altercation, especially those who may have driven by and captured video, such as in a Tesla, since they are equipped with video recording capabilities. There are photos and videos prior to and following the incident, the statement said. Currently, we do not have any footage of the actual incident taking place, which would be extremely helpful in this case and would undoubtedly show uh, or could ev even refute criminal capability, culpability. It's clear that tensions at the conflicting protests last weekend were high. 
Videos shared on social media from the afternoon showed a few pro-Palestinian protesters before Kessler fell yelling into megaphones, sometimes into people's faces, that all Israel will burn in hell and all of Israel are cowards. One man who was at the protest with Kessler said he saw a man hit someone with a megaphone who he later found out was Kessler. The Times has not been able to independently verify that, uh, that account without video from the altercation or additional witness statements. Imam Muhammad S. Metar of the Islamic Center of Conejo Valley said in a statement that his community stands against any form of violence and is devastated by Kessler's death. When this happened, it only added another layer of the pain to the pain and suffering, Metar said in an interview speaking on his own behalf and the center's. He was grateful for Barclay's calls to, uh, for the police process to play out, saying that jumping to conclusions without facts would make the situation no better than the violence in Israel and Gaza. As much as we mourn the passing of anyone, we still believe we have to follow the process at hand, Matar said. Very little is known about exactly what transpired. Averbach said he doesn't want any further violence or loss. Community, the community should remember and stand up in support of Kessler, he said, but he doesn't, does not want to see any retaliation. The world is watching this moment. What was a little interaction with, neighbor, with neighbors is now a global crisis, Averbach said. I hope it is not continued or exacerbated. I hope anyone at any rally can feel safe. On Wednesday, Averbach's synagogue held a small private vigil for Kessler with his family and friends. It also invited elected and law enforcement officials as well as faith leaders, including from the local mosque. Our community is really shaken right now, Averbach said. We are trying to figure out how to keep living here, to stand with us and mourn with us that remind me that this can or should be a safe place. I'm trying to remind people that we live in a wonderful, warm community in a country that supports us, stands with us, and grieves with us, Averbach said. Kessler, who was retired from the medical field and had a wife and two children, Averbach said, he said his family is seeking privacy. They're trying to figure out how to grieve a sudden loss, let, uh, let alone when, when there's now international attention on it, Averbach said. At the Kristallnacht Memorial Thursday evening, planned before the Israel-Hamas war broke out, the primarily Jewish crowd felt a renewed sense of urgency for such an event with the October 7 attack on southern Israel and Kessler's death in their hometown in the front of their minds. That ambush by Hamas militants left 1,200 Israelis dead, and an additional 240 were taken hostage. In the weeks since, more than 11,000 people have been killed in Gaza as Israel launched its offensive, according to the Palestinian Health Ministry. I am scared. I've been feeling scared as a Jew in the last few years, said Linda Stacy, a member of Barclays Temple who drove from the San Fernando Valley for the event hosted by the Westlake Church of Latter-day Saints. But the 59-year-old left the night of prayer and song, calling for support of Israel and Jews with some restored hope. I have faith in God, Stacy said. I know there's better days ahead. Another person at the memorial said he spent one day this week covering the corner where Kessler had protested with as many bouquets as he could. I didn't want people to think this guy didn't matter, said the temple Ne'er Simcha member who requested anonymity. Chuck Conway, another member of the temple who attended the event with his wife, said he didn't know Kessler, 
but that it was shocking to hear about such a clash at an intersection on his family often passes through. It just brings it really close to home, said Conway, who lives just north of Thousand Oaks in Oak Park. When the missiles and bombs are happening in Israel and Gaza, you'll feel to us that to a certain degree, but you really feel it when we're two miles away and somebody, whether it was an accident or he was pushed or hit, we don't know. But it wouldn't have happened if there, was, there wasn't this conflict. That was a symbol for something bigger by Grace Chohi from the Los Angeles Times, Saturday, November, uh, November 11, 2023. Right here's a short one from the Los Angeles Times for Sunday, November 12, 2023. Driver is accused of ramming synagogue gate by Karen Garcia. A woman accused of ramming her vehicle through the gate of a Tarzana synagogue and culture center could face a hate crime charge. Police responded to a call of vandalism at the 6100 block of Wilbur Avenue. The suspect, Tikva Matahede, 54, is accused of ramming her vehicle into the Eretz Synagogue and Cultural Center gates and then hitting another gate on the property, authorities said. However, Nader Giam, president of the Synagogue Board of Directors, said in a statement that the Eretz board members believed this wasn't a hate crime or an anti-Semitic act, but just vandalism. The statement does not elaborate on why the board members believe the incident was not a hate crime. Our community still stands as strong as ever and will persevere through any moment, especially a moment that is as melancholic as this one, Guillaume said. Tensions over the conflict between Israel and Hamas have been on the rise at synagogues and other gathering places for the Jewish community throughout Los Angeles County. A November 5th demonstration in support of Israel turned to a deadly thousand oaks when an altercation broke out between a 69-year-old Jewish man, Paul Kessler, and a pro-Palestinian demonstrator. Kessler died of severe head injuries. The Ventura County Sheriff's Office is investigating the incident. Two hours after the crash at the synagogue, Motahede was arrested on suspicion of hate crime vandalism. She could not be reached for comment. Thursday, several Facebook and Instagram accounts listed with the name Tikva Motahede include posts that are critical of the Israeli government, President Biden, former President Trump, and Hollywood. Guillaume said police will continue their investigation and have, and have been provided with footage from the surveillance cameras installed around the property. It is unknown whether the synagogue and cultural center building sustained any damage, but photos of the front of the facility show a large gate on the ground. That was Driver is Accused of Ramming Synagogue Gate by Karen Garcia from the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, November 12, 2023. And continuing the homestead, this is from the California section of the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, November 15, 2023. Jewish Parents Call for Empathy in L.A. Schools by Howard Bloom. Jewish parents stepped forward on Tuesday to call on the Los Angeles Board of Education to take concrete steps to prevent anti-Semitism on local campuses, echoing a call for sensitivity and understanding that Muslim parents made several weeks earlier. Since the onset of the Israel-Hamas war last month, there have been accounts of student bullying at schools, insensitivity, and a lack of understanding about the conflict and instances of, of instruction seen as one-sided or age-inappropriate. 
Jewish and Muslim leaders have reported a dramatic increase in hate speech, discrimination, threats, and some acts of violence across the state and country since October 7, when Hamas militants attacked southern Israel from the Gaza Strip, killing some 1,200 people and taking roughly 240 hostages. Israel's intensity, intense retaliatory bombing and invasion of Gaza have killed more than 11,200 people, two-thirds of them women and minors, according to the Palestinian Health Ministry. Every student and every family, regardless of their heritage and background, deserve respect and to feel safe and valued at school, said district parent Ronan Pestis, who spoke during public comments at Tuesday's school board meeting. Pestis was joined by about 15 other Jewish parents. With the rise of subtle and outright anti-Semitism in the world, our community, Pestis said, our families no longer feel safe. The parents spoke on behalf of the Jewish Parents Association, calling for staff training on anti-Semitism as well as classroom instruction on recognizing anti-Semitism and the Holocaust, the organized mass murder of about 6 million Jews in Nazi Germany during World War II. The parents said they represented more than 86,000 students with, the Jewish, with Jewish or Israeli ties. They also called on the district to adopt the definition of anti-Semitism developed by the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance. Anti-Semitism is a certain perception of Jews which may be expressed as hatred towards Jews, according to that organization. Rhetorical and physical manifestations of anti-Semitism are directed toward Jewish or non-Jewish individuals and or their property, toward Jewish community institutions and religious facilities. Manifestations might include the targeting of the state of Israel conceived as a Jewish collectivity. However, criticism of Israel similar to that leveled against any other country cannot be regarded as anti-Semitic. Pestis added that teachers need the tools and training to navigate such difficult issues. If kids don't have those conversations in class, where are they going to do it? Kids need to learn how to talk to each other about topics that they might not agree on without ending friendship and learn how to de-escalate conflicts. One parent said her middle schoolers had been recognized as Jews and demeaned by participants in a peace rally at the school. Another parent said a meeting of a Jewish student group at school had been disrupted when other students burst in and shouted at Israel. Three weeks ago, a group of Muslim parents came before the school board expressing deep concerns about bullying and insensitivity against Muslim students, prompting school superintendent Alberto Carvalho to issue a statement affirming campuses as nurturing, inclusive spaces. He said the district was committed to providing a safe learning environment free from bullying, discrimination, and harassment. Muslim parents complained during the public meeting that early district statements were unfairly one-sided in support of Israel. The parents estimated that about 500 district students have ties to the Gaza Strip. On Tuesday, after the Jewish parents spoke, Carvalho noted that Holocaust education is part of the curriculum and that many students take part in field trips to the Museum of Tolerance, which memorializes the Holocaust. As a school system, he said, the district must reject any form of intolerance, humiliation toward anyone, for whatever reason. We have provided additional resources, he added, specific guidance on how curriculum must be taught and how our own efforts to ensure that the monitoring of the curriculum 
and its implementation is not only done in an age-appropriate way, but does not go beyond the guardrails established ensuring uh, that it is bias-free. Teachers also have academic freedom within limits. It is a fine balance sometimes, but one that we are uh, exigent about. Resources for teachers include critical practices for anti-bias education, healing the hate, a national hate prevention curriculum for middle schools, and teaching materials on anti-Semitism and racism. The state's recently adopted ethnic studies framework also has optional materials related to Jewish American and Arab American experiences and cultures. Former LA board member David Tokovsky, a one-time state teacher of the year, said Carvalho spoke thoughtfully about the ethos and mission of the school system, but that there's more to be said about professional training for teachers by grade and what, for example, should be taught in 10th grade world history versus 11th grade U.S. history, as well as looking at how the study of literature could inform the understanding of history. An incident at a charter school drew widespread attention last week. Two first-grade teachers allegedly accused Israel of starting the war and engaging in genocide against Palestinians in Gaza. The charter school, Citizens of the World, rents space for classes at Adad Ari El Synagogue in Valley Village. Although authorities by LA Unif- authorized by LA Unified, charter schools hire and monitor their own staff, and they also approve and oversee their curriculum. Still, the parents who spoke on Tuesday clearly saw LA Unified as bearing meaningful responsibility going forward for all public schools within its jurisdiction. The charter school said it had suspended the two teachers and that they would not be returning to that campus. The charter had other locations. The principal also was placed on a two-week leave after inquiring how much longer the temple would be flying Israeli flags. The principal has apologized for being insensitive. That was Jewish Parents Call for Empathy in L.A. Schools by Howard Bloom from the California section of the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, November 15, 2023. All right, and from the city and state section of the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, November 15, 2023, hundreds arrested at Jewish sit-in for ceasefire in Gaza by Grace Tohi. Hundreds of California Jews and like-minded allies demanding a ceasefire in the Israel-Hamas war overwhelmed a federal building in Oakland on Monday, leading to mass arrests. More than half of the estimated 700 protesters were arrested after refusing to leave the sit-in at the Ronald V. Dellums Federal Building as it dragged into the evening, said Haley Meyerop of If Not Now, one of the groups that organized the rally. The demonstration followed similar actions across the U.S., including protests that interrupted major transit hubs in Chicago and New York. Protesters across California have called for local leaders to support a ceasefire, with some targeting defense contractors in El Segundo and the Israeli consulate in Los Angeles. In Oakland on Monday, organizers with the two Jewish organizations that led the sit-in, If Not Now and Jewish Voice for Peace, called on President Biden to support a ceasefire in the Gaza Strip, where Israeli military offensive over the last few weeks has killed more than 11,000 people, thousands of them children, according to the Gaza Health Ministry. The Israeli government declared war against Hamas after the group's militants ambushed Israel from 
uh, the Gaza Strip on October 7. About 1,200 people in Israel were killed, most of them civilians, according to the government, and more than 200 were taken hostage. United Nations leaders have warned the situation in Gaza is reaching a point of catastrophe beyond a humanitarian crisis, as Israel has also cut off fuel and vital supplies to the Palestinian territory. As Jews, we know that every life is sacred, Meyerhoff said in a statement. We have been horrified by the murders of Israelis on October 7, and we continue to be horrified by murders of over 11,000 Palestinians in the past month. Many demonstrators at Monday's sit-in wore shirts reading, Jews say ceasefire now and not in our name. Some holding signs reading, let Gaza live, while joining in song, chants, and dance, photos, and videos from the rally show. Filmmaker Boots Riley, writer-director of Sorry to Bother You, took part, as did prominent rabbis and descendants of Holocaust survivors. Without a ceasefire, we will see more death, more bloodshed, and more families shattered. Guns and bombs will not bring freedom or safety for either Palestinians or Israelis, Bay Area organizers of If Not Now and Jewish Voice for Peace wrote in a joint statement on Instagram, noting that they are Jews who refuse to let the Israeli government perpetrate unspeakable violence in our name. If Not Now describes itself on its website as a group of American Jews dedicated to ending U.S. support for Israel's apartheid system. Jewish Voice for Peace is a progressive Jewish anti-Zionist organization, its website says. The rally was held not far from where Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris were attending the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Conference in San Francisco. The Jewish groups urged them to follow the lead of Representative Barbara Lee, an Oakland Democrat who has been calling for a ceasefire. As the sit-in continued Monday evening, Federal building law enforcement of officers told protesters to disperse, and many refused. Soon, officers with the Federal Protective Service began making arrests, according to updates on X from If Not Now organizers. The Oakland Police Department responded to the protest, but declined to comment because it was not the lead agency. The Homeland Security Department, which oversees the Federal Protective Service, did not immediately respond to requests from the Times. Myrov said 450 people were arrested, with most issued criminal citations accusing them of failure to disperse. She called the sit-in California's largest ever protest of Jews in solidarity with Palestinians and the Bay Area's largest mass arrest event in recent years. There was hundreds arrested at Jewish sit-in for peace. Hundreds arrested at Jewish sit-in for ceasefire in Gaza by Grace Tohey. From the City and State section of the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, November 15, 2023. All right, and now we go on to an opinion article from the opinion section of the Los Angeles Times for Tuesday, November 14, 2023. Jewish immigrants to face Jewish immigrants to US face upheaval, bigotry, and division by Daniel Schulman. The last month has been profoundly disorienting for American Jews as we have observed the horrific Hamas massacre and subsequent Israeli counterstrikes. This terrible war has surfaced deep divisions within the Jewish community, with some supporting a ceasefire or expressing solidarity with Palestinian civilians and others calling for unwavering backing for the Israeli government. Yet many of us are experiencing the same jarring feeling that our traumatic past is not so distant that dormant bigotries have been reawakened and that the Jewish people have again arrived at a moment of profound upheaval.
More than a century ago, American Jews believed they were on the cusp of a new era, that they had finally found sanctuary in a world that for millennia had provided no quarter. Then they too faced a crisis that was both far away and also at their doorstep. Between 1880 and 1910, more than 1.5 million Jews poured into the United States, many fleeing anti-Semitism and oppression in Russia and its environs. They settled in large numbers in New York, gravitating toward Manhattan's Lower East Side, where Jewish immigrants crowded into dilapidated tenements that lacked electricity and plumbing and were so closely packed that natural light and ventilation were luxuries. The demographic changes that came with large-scale immigration prompted an upsurge of nativism. Groups such as the Immigration Restriction League, founded by Harvard alums, emerged to beat back the flood of foreigners, contending that they imported disease, crime, and moral decay, stole American jobs, and burdened public resources. Jacob Schiff, the legendary financier considered the leader of American Jewry during that period, watched this trend with alarm. He represented a wealthy German-Jewish elite who had come to the U.S. decades earlier. Many of them hailed from modest origins rising from peddling to the corridors of finance and commerce. None had ascended higher than Schiff, who now dominated their community's philanthropic life. Beginning in the 1880s, as pogroms erupted in Russia and conditions for Jews worsened, Schiff and his allies had fended off attempts to curb immigration, including efforts to impose literacy requirements. They had established a sprawling network of charitable organizations to assist the, the new arrivals and speed their acculturation. But in the early 1900s, as Russian and Eastern European refugees flooded into the country, even this robust aid apparatus was straining under the demand. Schiff believed New York could no longer absorb the deluge and word that the crime and squalor of the Lower East Side would both provide ammo uh, to the restrictionists and fuel anti-Semitism, which was already on the rise. Public opinion, meanwhile, was shifting sharply toward restriction. During his annual address to Congress in December 1905, President Theodore Roosevelt stated the laws now existing for the exclusion of undesirable immigrants should be strengthened. The solution, Schiff believed, was not halting immigration, but diverting it, in line with Roosevelt's suggestion that the right kind of immigration should be directed away from the congested tenements house districts of the great cities. By August 1906, Schiff was sketching out his plan in a letter to British author and activist Israel Zangwill, the son of Russian immigrants and an acolyte of Theodore Herzl, the father of Zionism. Zangwill had broken with the Zionist movement following its leader's 1904 death, forming an organization called the Jewish Territorial Organization, where Zionists were pushing to create a Jewish homeland in Palestine to the exclusion of other options. Zangwill and his organization were open to exploring alternative territories for the mass settlement of Jewish immigrants. Proud of his American citizenship, Schiff found Jewish nationalism distasteful, if not dangerous. A, a political Zionism places a lien upon citizenship and creates a separateness that is fatal, he had said. Many American Jews during that era shared his viewpoint. But Schiff was willing to set aside his philosophical differences with Zangwill for a help in routing, uh, routing emigration away from New York. 
Schiff initially favored New Orleans as the port for diverted immigrants, but he and his compatriots settled in Galveston, Texas, because it was farther west and not a major city where immigrants would be tempted to settle. It could serve not as a destination, but as a transfer point to locales west of the Mississippi. An immigration, an immigration group Schiff helped found would work with Zangwill's organization to convey Jewish immigrants to Germany and then to Galveston. The new arrivals would receive some money and be sent on to one of 19 cities, including Des Moines, Denver, and Kansas City, where local committees had formed to sponsor the, the immigrants and place them in jobs. On July 1, 1907, the first group of Jewish refugees reached Galveston. One by one, the 87 immigrants were examined by a doctor, grilled by inspectors, and scrutinized by customs officers. By the end of the year, 1,900 immigrants had passed through the port, but soon the panic of 1907 and the recession that followed made it difficult to find jobs for the newcomers. The flow of Russian immigrants via Galveston slowed to a trickle. While Schiff's Galveston project, was, uh, project flailed and the economy wallowed, a new but related crisis struck that threatened to tarnish perceptions of Jews. On September 1, 1908, New York Police Commissioner Theodore Bingham published a treatise uh, titled The For uh, Foreign Criminals in New York that included the shocking and false claim that Jews comprised 50% of the city's criminal element. Bingham's essay drew widespread condemnation, sparking fiery editorials from Jewish dailies and protest meetings. Downtown leaders directed the fury not just at the commissioner, but at the wealthy uptown Jews, Schiff in particular, who were slow to speak out against the article. Soon Bingham retracted his comments, claiming that the statics he cited were unreliable. The scandal faded, but in its wake, resentments between uptown and downtown Jewish communities lingered. Outside of New York, a change in administrations doomed the struggling Galveston movement, with President Taft's administration less supportive than Roosevelt's. By 1909, many of the Jewish immigrants who arrived at Galveston were turned back. Schiff's project hobbled by its stop-and-start nature and plagued by internal squabbling among its partners shut down in 1914. In seven years, the initiative settled some 10,000 Jewish refugees, less than half of the 25,000 immigrants Schiff hoped to support. Soon, the immigration, restri uh, the immigration restrictions that Galveston movement sought to avert all but sealed the nation to refugees for decades to come. As Schiff's project collapsed and the U.S. was no longer a viable safe haven for Jewish immigrants, Zionism gained ground in Europe and the U.S. in in the wake of the 1917 Balfour Declaration declaring British support for a Jewish homeland, the movement's dream, once far-fetched, began to come to fruition, though uh, skirmishes between Zionists and non-Zionists would continue for decades. Now the anxieties and divisions of a century ago feel oddly familiar. Again, our communities see how, despite our differences, we are often painted with the same brush, how easily medieval prejudices can become a modern concern, and how what happens overseas can have ramifications in Indiana or New York or California. That was Jewish Immigrants to uh, U.S. Faced Upheaval, Bigotry, and Division by Daniel Schulman, 
from the opinion section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, November 14, 2023. Daniel Schumann is the deputy Washington, D.C. bureau chief of Mother Jones. His book, The Money Kings, the epic story of the Jewish immigrants who transformed Wall Street and shaped modern America, from which this piece is adapted, publishes on Tuesday. But let's, So let's turn to some entertainment news now, and uh, we got a few book reviews here. So we're starting off with this one from the Los Angeles Times calendar section for Sunday, October 29, 2023. A Feminist Twist on 1984 Outclasses the Original by Bethane Patrick. The literary term anastrophe refers to the technique of reversing words or uh, reversing word order in a sentence for effect. Yoda, think of. Some retellings of celebrated stories enact a kind of anastrophe on a higher level, lifting one author's plot to, an, to another author's purpose, and in the process reversing the polarity of the story. Some of the strongest examples include Wide Sargazzo Sea, Jean Reins' post-colonial Jane Eyre prequel, Helen Oyeyemi's Snow White remix, Boy Snow Bird, and Barbara Kingsolver's recent Dickens reboot, Demon Copperhead. Sandra Newman's new entry in this small canon, Julia, is explicit about its task. The cover tells us it's a retelling of George Orwell's 1984. That source text remains one of those books everyone knows about and many read in high school. Having read something does not guarantee recalling everything about it. Most people might remember Room 101 and that startling first line. It was a bright cold day in April and the clocks were striking 13. On a reread, Orwell's narrative holds up, in large part due to the asperity of the prose and the prescient description of how fascism can creep into any society that takes freedom for granted. Trump's election made it a bestseller again. While it may not deserve a place alongside the greats, 1984 contains a dreadful power weaving many threads of betrayal into a devastating end. It must have been daunting for Newman to take on its retelling. Well known for her dystopian novel The Country of Ice Cream Star, as well as The Heavens, a dreamy look into the life of perverted Shakespearean muse Amelia Lanier, Newman drew some controversy in 2022 with The Men, in which, she, in which all humans with a Y chromosome disappear from the Earth. Trans activists believed Newman negated the lives of people with Y chromosomes. Newman refuted those, these critiques and defended her book's validity. This might make... This might matter to those who read Julia, for which Newman was chosen by the Orwell state, his son Richard Blair is his executor, though others made the final selection, or it might not. Suffice it to say that Julia is, the mo is most certainly a feminist anastrophic version of 1984, in which Winston Smith's slightly mysterious lover, Julia Wor Worthing, takes center stage. According to 1984 lore, there are two elements missing from the original. First, why is Julia attracted to Winston? <clears throat> Second, how does she rise so high in the party so quickly? Newman's Julia, whom we, met, whom we meet as she bicycles back to her woman's hostel in order to unclog a toilet, grew up in an SAZ, or semi-automatic zone. Yes, England is still known as Airstrip 1, and Big Brother is still watching you. 
Newman has been careful to preserve many of Orwell's best conceits and jargon, including Newspeak, which has the hostile inhabitants telling each other a snack is double, pl double plus good, and office mates referring to own life or a time spent in solitude, which everyone regards with suspicion. But the SAZ is Newman's invention, and so was Julia's history. She grew up with parents who resisted the party, but when circumstances force a complicated choice, she isn't one for half measures. She worked at the Ministry of Truth in, of course, the fiction department, as a mechanic helping machines run smoothly so they can create gripping yarns like Revolution's Victory, All for Big Brother, and War Nurse 7, Larissa. Our Julia, however, and you'll start thinking of her that way too, also has a sultry side. Orwell described her as a rebel from the waist down, and Newman gives her a slightly smutty history in the ministry's pornographic section, where she appeared the lower ranks with uh, titles including Inner Party Sinners, My Telescreen is Broken Comrade. Hearing Julia recall her various sexual exploits <clears throat> not only makes her human, it gives you the sense she really knows herself, what she wants, what she can do with do without, and what she's willing to accept in a pinch, or more accurately, in a clinch. She reveals she revels in alfresco couplings, some same-sex action, and a bit of mouth BDSM. Eventually, we'll learn the said story behind Julia's sexual liberty. Meanwhile, the Winston of Julia has little to recommend him. Everyone in their office calls him Old Misery Smith. He can't even rise to the occasion, innuendo intended, when Julia finally secures a room for their first assign assignation. Since we know Julia has had plenty of experience, Winston's flaccid personality seems less a commentary on people with Y chromosomes than a knock on one specific erstwhile hero. Newman solves the enduring mysteries of Orwell's Julia without resorting to twisty or outlandish machinations. Her additions accord with the original on the level of both plot and language. The twists do every eventually come, and you may think you've found one in a scene involving rats. You remember the rats, don't you? Don't tell me you don't. For a different writer, that would have been enough. Newman, however, transcends that chilling scene with a denouement both surprising and satisfying, one that proves Julia Worthing worthy of her own narrative and her own fate. Even more surprising and satisfying is the book's last line, a literary homage to a different and truly great author whose approach to women and sex was utterly unlike Orwell's. Newman has improved herself a worthy successor to Orwell, She's outclassed him, both in knowledge of human nature and in character development. Julia should be the new required text on those high school curricula, a stunning look into what happens when a person of strength faces the worst in humanity, as well as a perfect specimen of derivative art that, in standing on another's shoulders, can reach a higher plane. That was a feminist twist on 1984, outclasses the original, by Bethane Patrick. From the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, October 29, 2023. Patrick is a freelance critic, podcaster, and author of the memoir, Life B. All right, here is another one 
from the Canada section of the Los Angeles Times Sunday, November 5th, 2023. Paul Oster in top form sands the fireworks by Malcolm Forbes. On January 10, 2009, Paul Oster wrote a letter to his friend and fellow novelist J.M. Koitzi in which he singled out several convenient coincidences in Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment. He argued that these plot manipulations were ludicrously implausible but creatively effective. There are things that happen to us in the real world that resemble fiction, he added, and if fiction turns out to be real, then perhaps we have to rethink our definition of reality. Over the course of his career, Oster has crafted fiction that purports to be real when challenging, while challenging our, defe- our definition of reality. Most notable are his breakthrough 1985 novel, City of Glass, which combined hard-boiled detective fiction with uh, existential inquiry and featured a character called Paul Oster. His 1984 fable, Mr. Vertigo, with its quite literal flights of fancy, and Man in the Dark, 2008, whose dreamscapes conjured up parallel visions of modern-day America. Certain themes and elite motives are, cons- are constant presences in his playfully experimental fiction. Like Dostoevsky, Oster re- routinely serves up lucky occurrences and chance encounters. He explores contingency, identity, and illusion and nests stories within stories. His mostly male protagonists share some of their creator's traits but endure their own trials. They head out on fact-finding missions or go nowhere fast. They try in vain to forge their own destinies or, like Marco Stanley Fogg in 1989's Moon Palace, are utterly scorched by fate. A good austere outing contains drama, mystery, and trickery. A bad one puts us in mind of the description of the Florida sun in Sunset Park, 2010. It is all glitter and dazzle, but it offers no substance. Baumgartner, Oster's latest novel, his 18th, contains some of his trademark tropes, and yet it couldn't be more different from his from its predecessor. While the 2017 Booker Prize shortlisted 4321 was a hulking, sprawling, bald grunts Roman that charted one man's four lives in long, meandering sentences, Baumgartner is a more scaled-down, stripped-back affair that traces a single life trajectory in a more conventional way, and it is all the better for it. The book opens with a series of accidents. Cy Baumgartner, a 70-year-old professor of philosophy at Princeton, scalds his hand at the stove. Shortly afterward, he learns that his cleaner's husband has sliced off two fingers with his buzzsaw. Then, as he escorts Ed Papadopoulos, a young meter reader, down to the basement, Baumgartner takes a tumble. While recovering from the fall and musing on this day of endless mishaps, his mind wanders back to 1968, replaying the moment in Manhattan when he first caught sight of Anna, the woman who would become the love of his life. Just when it seems the novel will develop into a tale about an unlikely friendship between Cy and Ed, the old academic and the new kid on the block, Oster has his hero disappear again down memory lane. Baumgartner recalls Anna's unexpected death a decade ago, how in his grief he lost himself in her manuscript before doing something useful and finding a publisher for a collection of her poems. He reminisces about his father, 
a Polish-born dress shop owner and his seamstress mother, and he remembers that pivotal day when he, an unsuspecting Newark dirt boy, was informed of the scholarship that allowed him to break free of this mean little nowhere. The novel is not solely composed of flashbacks. In the present, Baumgartner retires, meditates on his mortal mortality, and contemplates another shot at marriage with a colleague. Then a student in Michigan tells him she is doing her dissertation on Anna's work and makes plans to visit, triggering irrational fears for her safe arrival and fresh recollections of his dearly departed. Baumgartner shifts among a variety of tones. At the outset, there is tragic comedy in the hero's blunders, his lively banter with Ed, and his banal exchanges with, uh, with UPS driver Molly. Later, we get a surreal dream sequence in which Baumgartner answers the disconnected phone in Anna's study and listens to her voice from beyond the grave. There are poignant streaks throughout as Baumgartner delves into the past, or rather, submerges himself in the world of then. Auster adds more color to the proceedings by interspersing his narrative with, with samples of his character's autobiographical writings. Anna's stories and Baumgartner's account of his trip through the blood through the blood lands of Eastern Europe. The book is not without its faults. Sometimes Auster strains too hard to make his prose appear original. At other junctures, he settles for hackneyed phrasings. For the most part, though, he succeeds in creating a captivating portrait of a man who was loved and lost and is preparing for his last stage of life. In contrast to Mr. Blank, the amnesiac protagonist of Auster's Travels in the Scriptorium, 2006, Baumgartner proves fascinating and enduring for having the ability to examine his own history, where he came from, what he has experienced, and where he has ended up. Some readers will rue the absence of reality-warping plot contrivances, unreliable narration, and metaflictional devices. But by dispensing with his postmodern pyrotechnics, Oster has produced a more grounded and consequently more believable work about a memorable life and a life of memories. It may not be vintage, Oster, but it is moving and compelling enough to qualify as a late career triumph. That was Paul Oster in Top Form Sands the Fireworks by Malcolm Forbes from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, November 5th, 2023. Forbes is written for The Economist, The Wall Street Journal, and The Washington Post. He lives in Edinburgh. Here's a final book review from the Los Angeles Times calendar section, Wednesday, November 15th, 2023. Satirical take on idolizing Rand. Lexi Freeman has fun with what a fictional author does after being canceled by Ryan Chapman. To answer your question, yes, Lexi Freeman's The Book of Ain is about Ain Rand, the bug-eyed author of Atlas Shrugged and The Fountainhead, the founder of objectivism, which extols rationalism and selfishness above all else, and who disciples include disciples include Peter Thiel, former Federal Reserve Chair Alan Greenspan, and many young men averse to moral complexity. Putting Rand in the title of one's satirical novel feels like a dare, or at least in a hyper-polarized time, a provocation. The good news is Freeman has written one of the funniest and unruliest novels in ages. It shakes you by the shoulders until you laugh, vomit, or both. 
Rand isn't a character, but the object of undue idolatry for Anna, a 39-year-old writer whose own satire of the opioid epidemic has been called classist by the New York Times. One might divine the author's inspiration from the Grey, Grey Lady's review of her debut, Inappropriation. In short, Anna has been cancelled. She also worries she, she's a narcissist. And now her career, finances, and identity are all in jeopardy. Freeman knows being cancelled just means you're invited to different parties. Anna attends the Upper East Side luncheon of a conservative socialite rumored to be hiding an Islamophobic Muslim authoress with a fatwa from the liberal media and later heads off to a dissident soiree at the West Village townhouse of a famously contrarian uh, female columnist. But Anna's skepticism and humor make her a pariah among the pariahs. Primed for religious converse, uh, conversion or a philosophical life raft of any kind, she chances upon a tour, a tour group visiting Rand's New York haunts. Drawn to their certainty, Anna finds solace in one of the 20th century's most famous contrarians. Her ideas had the uncanny chime of paradox, the dizzy zing of the counterintuitive. She wasn't funny, but I enjoyed her thoughts like I enjoyed jokes. Like anything audacious, true, because it's wrong. Anna's friends recoil at her new infatuation, but she doesn't mind. Rand serves a need she can't get from living people. Here, Freeman scratches at the difference between knowing and knowingness, and how our blind spots can sub subsume our personality. The Australian private school teachers of inappropriation misread Donna Haraway's A Cyborg Manifesto, confusing the feminist scholar's post-human reshaping of animal and machine for a trendy costume. Anna's identification with Rand is similar, all out of proportion and sense. This makes for page after page of high comedy. The exuberant first person, I, almost de demands to be printed at a large font size than the rest. The novel turns picaresque when Anna is whisked away to Hollywood on the thin pretense of an aimed Rand television show. Maybe a miniseries, perhaps something animated? She funds her trip with a loan from her father on the condition she visit a fertility doctor who then informs her she's premenopausal. Anna unwittingly moves into a hype house of content creators for a platform she thinks is called Jizz, J-I-Z-Z. -Z. Easy parody and scatological humor follow. Think Ruben Ostlin's Triangle of Sadness. After insulting her way to yet another exile, Anna decamps for a commune on the Greek island of Lesbos. She's promised ego death and the teachings of a deceased guru who once owned 350 Harley Davidsons. As much as I wanted to destroy my sense of self, I was excited to enter a world built on the teachings of a truly spectacular pariah. She's joined by her friend Vivian, whose politics are consistent only insofar as they prove the horseshoe theory of extremist left-right convergence. In short order, Rand is discarded for a blend of movement therapy, new age sentiment, and a, a historicism. To her own surprise, Anna settles in nicely, beginning with an affair with a Tom Cruise-obsessed Polish teenager who high-fives mid-coitus 
Freeman excels at writing sachet inter intercourse. While the novel hums with energy in its th last third, the passage of time wobbles. What feels like days turns out to be several weeks. Anna's narrative drift takes her to a Athens, leading to an ending some may find perfectly natural and others dissatisfying. But the Book of Ain is rife with dissatisfactions to its credit and with self-aware jokes and serious questions about self-awareness. Also, serious questions about jokes. The, set, the setting recalls Don DeLeo's novel, The Names, but the true an antecedent is Philip Roth's Sabbath's Theater, which Freeman name-checks. Roth's masterpiece also ruminates on the submerged grief for a deceased brother and the true freedom of anti-Puritan licentiousness. It also takes pot shots at a New York Times critic. Ultimately, though, the author torques her contrarianism, past trolling, past knee-jerk philosophizing, and past satire, alchemizing a critique of literary culture in, in all its ideological waywardness. After all, when everyone you encounter is performing themselves, skepticism becomes a rare and essential quality, but also provide a path toward genuine physical, emotional, and literary connection. High five. That was Satirical Take on Idolizing Rand by Ryan Chapman from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, November 15, 2023. Chapman is the author of the novels The Audacity, out in April 2024, and Riots I Have Known. High five. And now on to some other entertainment news. This is from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, October 24th, 2023. Polly Shore brings a modern twist to his podcast. After keeping a lower profile in recent years, the comedian is host of a rollicking show with Jam in the Van by Alex DeStefano. When Polly Shar says comedy is in his blood, he really means it. The comedian actor was literally raised in the stand-up scene from the age of four. Comedy is just part of who I am, Shore said during a recent interview at a West L.A. podcast studio. Since my mom owned the comedy store, I was always there, even as a little kid. I would watch stand-ups perform their sets as a youngster in the sound booth away from the alcohol, and I knew a lot of comedians. Some were like family to me. Born in 1968 to Sammy and Mitzi Shore in Beverly Hills, Shore was thrust into the comedic spotlight as an MTV personality in the late 80s. He starred in several hit films in the early 90s, including Encino Man and In the Army Now. He has kept a low pro lower profile in recent years, but remained active as a writer, director, producer, musician, and touring comedian, and now as a podcaster. Shore is collaborating with Los Angeles-based comedy podcasting company Jam in the Van, founded by Jake Kotler, on the on a podcast aptly titled The Jam in the Van Show, hosted by Polly Shore, which premieres its second season on Tuesday. But this isn't a typical free-format conversation podcast like Joe Rogan's or Adam Carolla's. Of course, things will flow freely, but Shore is bringing a modern twist to an old-school format similar to his early interview style as a VJ on MTV. I like this structure. It's simple, Shore said during a late August taping of the show that featured comedians Chappelle Lacey and Frank Castillo, influencers, the old 
Gaze and Billy Lee from Vanderpump Rules. Each show will have three guests. The first is a comic that I'm friends with. The second guest is an influencer, and the third guest is a band or musician, Shore said. Admitting he was not sure at first about having influencers as guests, Shore acknowledged the need to adapt to new business models to find success. Having influencers goes a bit out of my comfort zone because I grew up before that time, he said. But that's the business now. I mean, like the old gays who have like 10 million followers. I don't have millions of followers like that. This is where the business is now. Instagram, Snapchat, TikTok, YouTube, Facebook. I do have my social media pages that my fans follow, and I promote my tours. It's also a lot of me hanging out with my, with my dog, Buster. Cutler, one of Jam and the band's founders, said he and Shore had been friends for about a year and did one season of the Jam and the Van show hosted by Polly Shore beginning in June. Season 2 launches with a totally different format. We originally thought of this as a podcast and had big guests like Gary Clark Jr., Danny Brown, and Fred Durst, where we shot a bunch of live episodes at South by Southwest, Kotler said. But we soon realized that the world doesn't need another traditional podcast, so we decided for Season 2's format, we'll have a comic, an influencer, and a musical guest every show. And it's been great a great success so far. To date, guest influencers on the podcast have included Mitzi Sanderson, Rusty Featherstone, and Brittany Furlan. Guest comedians include Jesse Jetski Johnson, Matt Edgar, and Sandy Danto, and the musical lineup has featured the Palms, Starcrawler, Cisco Adler, Feli, and Wild Child. I just want to have fun with this format and see where it goes, Shore said after a taping of an episode that featured musical guest Corey Feldman. At this point in my life, it's about having fun and surrounding myself with good people. I care about these guys and when and what they are doing at Jam in the Van has been cool. Shore is passionate and dedicated to pumping out new content for his podcast, but says his true love is touring the country doing stand-up. That currently includes dates with his one-man show, Stick With the Dancing, Funny Stories from My Childhood. My show is just what it's called. I just tell all these wild, funny stories about my childhood, says Shore. Since I grew up in comedy, these are some legendary people I got to hang out with. But for my career in comedy, at some point in high school I took it seriously because you have to be serious in this industry. You can't ever have a mindset that things will come to you. You have to put it to work. You put it in you have to you have to put in work. I never want to stop playing comedy shows or touring. I have a lot of people out there across America that love my style, and I still pinch myself all the time when I sell out clubs. I think F, why do these people want to see me? It's still crazy, but I could not be happier. Shore said that performing stand-up is a form of therapy for him. Lots of comics and musicians have met early ends, so you know there's a darker side to comedy for many, he says. But I avoided that because I don't have an addictive personality. I can stop drinking or partying. Mostly, I find myself sad and depressed more now than when I was a kid, but that's just because my parents died. Aside from his grief, Shore says he's content focusing on his podcast and comedy tour. I still have my joys in life. Life is great. I'm a very humble dude. I don't live a lavish lifestyle with a huge-ass mansion 
or an expensive car. I just love doing stand-up. Shaw recently hosted a comedy night at the Jam and Event Studios called Do What Do You Want to Open for Polly Shore. Several up-and-coming LA area comics competed for a chance to open for Shore on one of his tours of the Midwest. The show was taped and released in September. One of my big passions is giving back to my community, so I loved this show, said Shore. It was such a blast. After all these years, Shore says he's flattered and grateful for fans of his films from the 90s. I love it that I have dedicated fans after all these years and some new ones. It's remarkable, he said. I meet a lot of them out on the road in middle America, and it feels nice. One thing's for sure, I will be out about on the road till the end of the year, and I couldn't have it any other way. I will be touring till I die. That was Polly Shore brings a modern twist to his podcast. From the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, October 24th, 2023. And that's by Alex DiStefano. All right, and moving on. This is from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, October 18, 2023. Adapting the formula to TV. Lessons in chemistry changes a little from page to screen, Lee Eisenberg explains, by Yvonne Villarreal. This article contains spoilers for episodes one and two of Lessons in Chemistry. Like most Hollywood adaptations that test a book's formula, Lessons in Chemistry, a fictional drama about a gifted female chemist who reluctantly becomes a TV cooking show sensation and contends with the sexist establishment, has some controlled and experimental variables that bring changes to the story on screen. The series was adapted from Bonnie Garmus's 2022 bestseller of the same name, and the first two episodes have launched on Apple TV+. Lee Eisenberg, who developed the story for television, hopes devotees of the book will be pleased with how the show is faithful to the spirit of its source material without being a carbon copy of it. In the early conversations that I had with Bonnie, it was very much her acknowledging that she understood that we're not transcribing a book into a TV show, said Eisenberg. The source material was so strong, the book was our Bible in the, in the, writer, in the writer's room. We were sitting with it, we were consulting it, we were pulling lines of dialogue, we were taking descriptions and turning it into sets and locations. Sarah Adina Smith, who directed the first two episodes, said she treated the block of episodes as its own movie, that set up the romance between Elizabeth Zott, played by Brie Larson, who is also an executive producer, and her colleague, Calvin Evans, Lewis Pullman. A relationship whose consequences will shape Elizabeth's journey as the season plays out. It's such a beloved book, and one of the things that makes, so, makes books so impactful is you can go at your own pace, and oftentimes you'll put it down, and days later, you'll pick it up, your brain has time to sit with things and digest, she said. And so I wanted this show to have that sense of negative space in the way that we shot it and let us just enjoy and get lost in the love story and really feel the eternity of those moments so that once it's over, we're just as gutted as Elizabeth. Here's a guide to the changes made from a book to screen in the premiere episodes including the transformation of Harriet Sloan and how a certain canine got his name. The introduction to Elizabeth Zott begins differently on the page than it does on screen. 
The book opens with her as a 30-year-old permanently depressed single mother, circa 1961, whose routine consists of rising before dawn to meticulously make her young daughter's school lunch, which she would accompany with a note of motherly suggestions for the day, such as play sports at recess, which do not automatically let the boys win. The reveal that she then sets off her to her job as the popular star of a cooking TV show, Supper at Six, comes at the end of the first chapter. The series, meanwhile, begins by showing Elizabeth in the midst of her stardom. The hoopla leading up to a taping of her show fills the opening moments of the premiere episode, with eager audience members assembling outside the TV studio for a glimpse of the star. But it's clear she's no ordinary domestic idol. As Elizabeth makes her way through the studio, she asks things like, do you get the sodium chloride I did you get the sodium chloride I requested? When Elizabeth's face finally appears on screen nearly two minutes in, she's just jammed a pencil in her French twist and is standing in a bubblegum pink kitchen set, ready to be a tell it like it is guy to hit who is unafraid to challenge the status quo for the housewives tuning in. The glimpse of her life as a mother and her melancholia comes into play later in the show's run. I wanted viewers to feel a sense of suspense because she has become this legendary character for so many women who love her show, said Smith, who pitched the idea when she joined the project. I wanted us to be like, who is this woman? Who is the real Elizabeth Zott? And that we would start to unpack, as that, unpack that as we went back in time and got to meet her. It came from that of also wanting to have maximum contrast between the star of her own show to someone who, when we cut back in time, is a lab tech who's picking up old beakers and making coffee. And I wanted to make sure that we felt that difference really clearly. Eisenberg added, part of it was we're seeing Brie Larson, but we're also seeing Elizabeth Zott for the first time. And how do you capture one of the most iconic images from the book? The cover is Elizabeth Zott with a pencil in her hair. That was something we wanted to uh, get to early on. We loved the energy of setting up who this character will become, and then going back in time and seeing her in a lab and thinking, well, how could she possibly get, get from assistant chemist at a lab to the host of her own cooking show? Elizabeth is a brilliant lab tech at Hastings Research Institute, who endures harassment and disrespect by her male colleagues when she meets Calvin the extraordinary and lonely superstar of the same lab with a penchant for rowing. Both are socially awkward introverts who have an unpleasant first encounter. In the book, he's unwilling to share his surplus of beakers, which she takes anyway. In the series, she sneaks into his lab to get access to, to ribose. Their chemistry, though, is undeniable, and the two eventually find themselves working together, living together, rowing together, and raising a dog 6.30 together. As the relationship gets serious, Elizabeth makes it clear to Calvin that because of her career ambitions, she has no interest in getting married or becoming a, par a parent, which he accepts. But like science, the unpredictability of life takes over, and the second episode ends with Calvin, while on a run with 6.30, being fatally hit by a bus. In the book, Calvin is out one night walking 6.30 and gets run over by a police car. 
Elizabeth soon finds herself jobless, single, and on the brink of on the brink of parenthood, learning she's pregnant after Calvin's death. We talked a lot about the death, about the timing of the death, how much story we wanted to have before we got there, Eisenberg said. When the show begins, we're setting up all of these different paths that Elizabeth could go down. One of them is this unlikely love story between these two people who fall in love, initially through their passion for the sciences, and then see a depth in each other. But it's also about grief and loss, and how the person stays with you forever, but also you continue on. That was something that we discussed ad nauseum in the writer's room. It was less about the details of the death. I honestly don't remember the logistics of why we made the changes we did. It was probably what a dog is capable of doing. I think we wanted Calvin on one of his runs. It was really about the surprise of it. Hopefully, it's not what you're expecting at all. One of the book's most beloved characters has four legs and an active internal monologue. Elizabeth and Cal's dog, 630. After flunking out of the Marines as a bomb-sniffing dog, the mixed-breed stray was roaming the streets when he followed Elizabeth home one day. His unique name commemorates the time of day when he comes into her life and his intelligence is a perfect match for Elizabeth. He learns nearly a thousand English words, and his insightful perspective on his family's adventures make him one of the novel's key narrators. I think 630 is going to be the most controversial character for fans of the book, because the thing about it is, when you're reading a book, everybody pictures these characters differently, Smith said. So everyone probably had a very different idea of what's kind of dog 630 was. There's probably no way we're going to make everybody happy. In the series, he's a golden doodle played by dog actor Gus. He enters Elizabeth's life after rummaging through her garbage in the alleyway of her home one night and is named for the time he wakes her up each morning. We understand the introduction of this character was something very special, Eisenberg said. I started to think about military background and military time. All of the soldiers were waking up at a specific time, and dogs were being pulled out of their kennels at 6.30 on the dot. There was a precise a precision, to, a precision to it. Maybe that was a way of slightly tweaking the lore from the book. In this Friday's episode, Living Dead Things, 6.30's point of view will come into play as he observes a fog of grief consume Elizabeth after Cal's death. He'll be voiced by B.J. Novak. Much of the book is told from the perspective of the dog, Eisenberg said. From a production standpoint, it would be impossible to have the dog get as many things and be as smart as he was in the book. It would have taken all of our production days in order to accomplish that. Having 6.30 be the narrator for the grief episode was something that was very intriguing to us and, and I thought could be very powerful. Everyone experiences grief differently, and it's not only experiencing grief, it's also being there for someone who, for someone when they're experiencing grief and that level of helplessness that, that you want to say the perfect thing that will take away the pain, that will take away the loss. And when you realize, what you realize is there's nothing you can do. Comfort will help, but nothing can change what happened. And seeing that struggle from a dog who says I didn't have the words was, to me, very powerful. 
Another pivotal relationship in Elizabeth's journey to letting down her guard is her friendship with Harriet Sloane. In the book, Elizabeth's neighbor, who lives across the street, is a 55-year-old woman with grown children who is in an unhappy, abusive marriage. Harriet becomes an anchor for Elizabeth, helping the reluctant mother navigate parenthood. In the process, Harriet finds relief from her reality and eventually leaves her husband before beginning a relationship with, Sup with Separate Six's producer, Walter Pine. Her character undergoes the biggest transformation in page to screen. In the series, Harriet, Aja Naomi King, is closer to Elizabeth's age. She is a, she has a poised and determined legal aide who has two young kids and is in a loving marriage with a doctor. Eisenberg said part of the character's alteration was in response to the casting process. We came across Aja Na Naomi King for a different role that Eisenberg said they ultimately did not pursue. We were obsessed with, the, with her, and we had the role of Harriet that we hadn't yet cast and we started talking about. Well, if we just cast Harriet and we have Aja, we're now going to be competing for screen time. Is there a version of taking Aja and making her Harriet? And what if we made her a young black female lawyer during that time? In a deviation from the book, Harriet has a friendship with Calvin before she forms a bond with Elizabeth. It, we talked about these unlikely connections and friendships that existed in the book and that we really leaned into in the series, Eisenberg said. When we meet Calvin, he's very much alone in the world. He runs to work. He works on his experiments alone. He has his, this isolated life. But we didn't want to, to be so black and white in that instance. This idea that Calvin sometimes is a support system for Harriet as an unlikely babysitter and what Calvin could have been like as a father was something that we wanted to explore. We like that Calvin and Harriet are, the, are there for one another. We also like that their characters in the show are flawed. We're not putting people up on a pedestal, and Calvin disappoints Harriet in a very big way. And how do friendships come back from that? Much of Harriet's new storyline involves her impassioned fight to stop the building of the 10 Freeway through their neighborhood, which is predominantly black and is inspired by the real-life destruction of the Sugar Hill District in, his, in historic West Adams in the 1960s. She leans on Calvin and Elizabeth's support at different moments in her crusade. Harriet asks Calvin to attend a city council meeting where her committee would present their case against the freeway in order to show that the cause is supported by all its constituents. But he loses track of time with Elizabeth on a rowing expedition and forgets to attend. Later in the season, she'll seek the help of Elizabeth. Eisenberg was interested in the juxtaposition of their experience as women. We started doing research, and we found the Sugar Hill neighborhood in West Adams and the 10th Freeway, and this movement and this racist bureaucracy that was going to try to place the 10th Freeway through this very upper-middle-class, predominantly black neighborhood filled with doctors and lawyers and some of the biggest entertainers, uh, entertainers of that time, Eisenberg said. Looking at Harriet's story, parallel with Elizabeth's story, Elizabeth, as a white woman during that time, who is pushing up against sexism and discrimination in the workplace, and to see someone who is contending with all the things Elizabeth is contending with, but with the added layer of, of race into it. Harriet is also not only fighting for women's rights, she's fighting for survival. 
She's fighting for her neighbor. She's fighting for our community. Seeing her and Elizabeth find a friendship and commonality, but also seeing moments where the two of them push back against one another, particularly Harriet pushing back against Elizabeth and saying, you have an opportunity here and what you say matters. That scene, which comes later in the series, that was really powerful. To see this dynamic between these two women during that time was something that felt like an extension of so many of the things that existed in the book, even though it was a deviation. That was Adapting the Formula to TV by Yvonne Villarreal from the Canada section of the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, October 18, 2023. All right, let's conclude with this article from the Canada section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, October 31st, 2023. A punk's folk art. All-American Jewish lesbian singer and cardboard creative Frank details how she forged her feminist voice by Candace Hansen. She's a 66-year-old self-proclaimed all-American Jewish lesbian folk singer and cardboard cobbler, a queer punk icon who forged her feminist vo voice before most riot girls were born. Queer core was a dream for me because it was what I wanted when I was 20, Frank says, looking over five decades of notebooks, flyers, tour lanyards, and promotional items created by Island Records to promote her first major labor release in 1989. Some of Frank's foundations surround her, including a paper sculpture memorializing the Slash Magazine t-shirt and that Frank wore in the 1970s, and the drawings she made as a teenager working at the Women's Build, the Women's Building, the Los Angeles landmark hailed as the nation's first female-owned and operated community center for feminist art and education. It's all illuminated by the glow of 8mm home movies her parents shot in the 1960s. Before signing to Island, touring the world with the Smiths or gracing stages in drag as Hot August Frank, P-H-R-A-N-C, she surfed, interned as the Lesbian Tide magazine, and played in early Los Angeles punk bands such as Nervous Gender, Catholic Discipline, and Castration Squad at places like Club 88, and the Hong Kong Cafe. Frank changed her sound and hosted folk spectaculars at the Whiskey performing Take Off Your Swastika, acoustic in the style of the lesbian and radical folk singers who inspired her before punk. Frank got her trademark flat top, artist Albert Cornejo is still her barber, and started making cardboard sculptures uh, of food, selling uh, her work to make rent on an East Hollywood apartment. The Butch Closet, Frank's experimental retrospective at Craig Kroll Gallery in Santa Monica, feels like a memoir. From reproductions of the dress she never wanted to wear to the boots that have become a part of her, the pieces in the show illustrate her life lived in clothing and music set against important moments in LA history. The exhibition tracks her evolution from a young girl to an old butch through drawing, sculpture, fiber art, archival material, ephemera, music, and other performance. Her, her, her care for community, sense of humor, and knack for bringing people together are palpable. This conversation has been edited for length. Question. I've heard that you got into nervous gender because you looked hot, you looked hot hanging around outside of a club in L.A. Is that true? Answer. Well, it wasn't outside of a club. 
It was an Avengers and Mutants show in Vermont. I was at the show, not knowing a soul, in a suit and tie, just trying to look cool, leaning up against the wall. Edward Stapleton came up to me and said, Want to be in the band? And I was like, Yeah, I play guitar. I had this whole background, but it had nothing to do with it. I fit the bill, and I was off to the races. How incredible, because Nervous Gender was the queerest band in town. Three gay men with incredibly different visions that I that, than I had. I played guitar a little, but mainly it was synthesizers, and I'd never seen a synthesizer in my life. Gerardo Velasquez had, had such vision. I think I fit the vision, but I could never sing those songs to Gerardo's liking. He was very particular. My mommy's chest probably came the closest. Gerardo died of AIDS in 1992. I wish he lived to see what's happening now in music. Question. So many queer musicians were a part of the early L.A. punk scene. It's wild that the feminist art world and the queer world didn't explicitly overlap with punk until much later. Answer. Nobody had come, nobody had come to, together yet. But as individuals, if you were queer, that early 1970s L.A. punk community was a fertile place to be. Nervous gender was part of a benefit for the women's building. All I could see was the similarities between punk and feminism, how much we had in common, you know? We were oppressed by the same forces. I thought we should be one. This benefit, they just pulled the plug on the band. We just could not see eye to eye. Question. Can we talk about those early queer feminist communities that helped you to develop as an artist at such a young age? Answer. Feminist art is where I develop my identity, my foundation, and my perspectives, which are continually changing. I didn't just come out as a dyke on stage and on punk. I'd already been at the women's building and part of the lesbian feminist scene in West L.A. I was a little junior dyke at Lesbian Tide with Jeannie Cordova, who had a huge influence on me. There was a newsstand across from Cantor's, and there was a copy of the Lesbian Tide. On the back was a list of queer and lesbian places and women's places. There was a lesbian feminist drop-in rap group in Santa Monica. I told my mom I was going to the library and I rode my bike there. I stumbled in and I sat down in the circle of women having a meeting and they asked, Why are you here? I said, Because I like chicks. And they were like, Peep, peep, peep. Finally, they said, Women are not chicks. That was my first consciousness-raising lesson. These women were so kind to me that they took me in. My whole story is based on community. Community raised me. Question. Where did visual art be when did visual art become central to your creative practice? Answer. I've always made artwork since I was a kid, always on cardboard. When the album Folk Singer came out, I started touring with the Smiths and did shows with Violent Femmes. When Positively Frank came out, I toured with Morrissey. Right when I when things were starting to peak, my brother was murdered, and everything stopped for me. My brother was a very kind and generous person. When you lose a family member, it affects everybody. I just stopped. I didn't want to be in front of anybody or perform anymore. Jill Burnham at 18th Street Arts Complex in Santa Monica said, We have this space opening. Do you think you might want it? It was a dark room. I painted it and started my, making my cardboard work. I made a lot of cardboard food when I lived in Normal Avenue because I was always hungry. I painted food that I'd have sales that I'd have sales the day the rest 
the rest was rent. I'd have sales the day the rent was due. Question. Why cardboard? Answer. Cardboard is great because it's free. You can find it in the alley. You don't need anything. You don't have to have money to make art. I learned to sew eventually, so the work started transforming. Question. Why is your show called The Butch Closet? Answer. I'm calling it a closet, not just for the metaphor of the closet, but also because the closet is a place where you keep things, where things can grow, where you can put yourself together. I'm using it to tell the story of how I grew up to be who I am today from birth to punk rock and a little beyond there. I have recreated mainly objects of clothing that were significant to me growing up. It starts with my baby quilt made of paper and cardboard. I have a slash t-shirt my favorite jacket from when I was five, my lamb chop Halloween costume, recreations of significant pieces of clothing that tell my story. Question. Why is clothing central to your work? Answer. It's the constant and so significant in claiming identity. Growing up, I had to wear a dress because of dress codes. That didn't change until seventh grade. They let you wear pants. It was torture up until then. It was a struggle at home. I see so much reflection in that today. Why can't we all feel good about who we are and present ourselves in the way that feels the best to us without restrictions on who we can be and how we look? When you talk about being queer, coming out, cutting or growing your hair, wearing clothing that makes you feel good and strong and like you, like you and who you are, that's why clothing. Question. What does the word butch mean to you? Answer. I've had an interesting relationship with the word butch over time because when I came out, it was the beginning of the lesbian feminist movement. There was an appreciation at the time for the old gay community, especially the butch femme community, where many butches passed as men to save their lives and be who they were with their partners. You'd see the older butch femme couples in the bars with their ties and big hair, and some of the older dykes would say, oh, you're such a baby butch, as a compliment, and I would have and I would be very defensive. I've come to appreciate through the years that Bush identity is something to be honored and cherished. Our history is something to be loved and appreciated. I've evolved, as I have in many ways of my life. I'm proud to be Butch today. I love it. You can call me Butch. Question. Butch has always been a part of the lesbian and the trans community. It's a both and, uh, and people could be on many different places of that spectrum? Answer, yeah, and now it's cool to be butch. Question, what, became, what becomes illuminated for you in the process of translating something from everyday life into this other medium? Answer, I felt so strongly about this little plaid jacket from my childhood, I wanted to make it forever. You see, in the home movies, I'm wearing it wherever I go. It was a long making because it's plaid. The way I make my paper is I roll out a giant roll of craft paper and then I paint the paper to look like fabric. Then I cut and sew it like it's a piece of clothing. Each piece is painted and created and then cut as if it was fabric. Making plaid is such a med meditative process. Every brush stroke of making that plaid, the memory of wearing the jacket, the memories that come up in the creation, that is all the energy that's put into the piece. Making that jacket and painting that plaid was an intense process. And when I, see it when I see it made, it just fills me up. 
I'm hoping that all that I'm hoping that hoping all that feeling is something that people feel when they see it. Folks, it looks like we're just about to run out of time here, so I'll just read this little part. The Butch Closet is at the Craig Kroll Gallery, Bergamot Station, 2525 Michigan Avenue, Suite B3 in Santa Monica, now through December 2nd. For more information, you can call 310-828-6410 or go to craigkrullgallery.com. That's C-R-A-G. K-R-U-L-L, gallery, G-A-L-L-E-R-Y, all one word, dot com. And folks, it looks like we are about to come to the end of another edition of Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. So keep it right here with everything regarding us Jewish folk in the city, the state, the nation, Israel, and the world. Until Until next time, everybody, this is your reader and host, Mark Braun. Shalom and peace.